Welcome to the Digiday Podcast. We're at week five, day three here of uh, our own quarantine. Um, I'm Brian Marcy, and uh, before we get to this week's conversation with um, the Guardian US and Australia CEO, Evelyn Webster, I want to tell you about something new that we're doing, and um, it's very much like this podcast, kind of spawned from this podcast. It's called The New Normal. This is a live stream series in which every Friday afternoon, um, I'm going to be speaking with a media executive about how they're adapting their business to this this new normal, if you will. Um, we've already done a couple of episodes, and this week we are uh, doing our third episode. It is going to be with uh, Skift co-founders Rafat Ali and Jason Clampett, and we're going to be talking about a topic we're going to be talking about here, actually, today with Evelyn, and that is about how um, Skift was going to have a paywall that they were, they were working on for like nine months, and then coronavirus upended everything. In particular, they're focused on the travel industry, so you can imagine um, how much upheaval uh, they're dealing with. So they made all of their coverage still um, freely available, and they, they, adopt, they adapted to adopt a more of a guardian model that it asks for reader contributions. And so we're going to find out about that adaption. Um, so if you um, are interested, and I hope you are, uh, please join us. It is at noon on Friday. And if you go to digiday.com slash TNN, you can f- register and find out more um, and check it out. If not, we'll have a replay on our YouTube channel and on our, our website. So please do join us. So Evelyn, I want to uh, welcome you to the Digiday Podcast Remote Edition. Thank you very much for having me, Brian. Okay, I have to ask, you know, where are you doing this from? <laughs> I am doing this from my home in Manhattan, in my okay. homemade office slash gym slash ironing room. Okay, good. I, I did some. I did some pre-podcast uh, push-ups, um, so <laughs> I'm ready to go. Excellent. I like to hear it. All right. Uh, so, Evelyn, for those who are not that familiar um, with the Guardian's model, I think um, it's an interesting one because the Guardian is a unique type of publication. Um, particularly, if, you know, we've got a global audience, of course, but there's a lot of people in the U.S. So, explain the Guardian's model and the uniqueness of it. The business model, yeah. Yeah. So uh, it's changed quite a lot, actually, over the last three years. So um, three or four years ago, um, like many publishers, we were very reliant on advertising revenue. In fact, uh, when I joined the Guardian US team three and a half years ago, over 80% of our revenue came from advertising. Um, In a market that's evolving as rapidly as ours, we recognize the need to evolve the business model. And um, there were many discussions, many debates actually, three, four years ago, about whether we put up a paywall that would have appeared to have been the answer perhaps to some of the problems that we were experiencing in the ad market. Mm-hmm. That kind of goes against everything The Guardian stands for. Um, it's not, it would have been never, awkward. It would have it been, been, been a little bit difficult. I mean, you know, we're, we're very much a purpose-driven, values-driven organisation. We put purpose before profit. We believe that everybody, whether they can afford it or not, should have free and unfettered access to high-quality, fact-based journalism. And it's difficult to do that if, it, if the content is hidden behind a paywall. Mm. And, so and, that, and it should be said, I mean, you, you have a trust, this, right? We are owned by a trust. Yeah. And the, the purpose of that trust is to protect the editorial independence of The Guardian, which is exactly why we say we put purpose before profits. And that's what we do. Uh, so, yes, we're owned by a trust. Uh, but that said, we are a, we are a, a commercial enterprise. We are seeking profit. Um, even though three, four years ago we weren't making any. Um, we had to put ourselves on a path to break even that looked at 
forced us to look at diversifying our business model. We were reluctant to put our content behind a paywall for all the reasons I've just explained. And so we hit upon this idea, quite bizarre. Lots of people doubted whether it would be successful. I think many in the room who were, many of us who were in the room having the conversation at that time possibly questioned our own sanity. But it was this theory that, if look, if we have these deep connections with our readers across the globe, were there enough of them in America and elsewhere in the world that they would underwrite our journalism even if they didn't have to? And uh, we believe that they would, and we've been proven right, which is why the business model that we have uh, are voluntary contributions. So readers who come to The Guardian anywhere in the world will at some point in your user journey with us be confronted with a message, lots of different messages in lots of different ways and lots of different sizes and lots of different voices that says, whilst you are here, would you mind terribly making a contribution to our journalism? And our reader revenue model was born from that. And we've been doing that very successfully for the last three years. And now in America, uh, it's about reader revenue is about 40, 45-ish percent of our total revenue. And that's not because advertising has gone backwards, but our advertising revenue has actually continued to grow. So where was that like, say, two years ago? Oh, uh, well, I mean, three years ago. It it was in the US, it was 80 plus percent of my revenue. Now it is much closer to 50-50. I'm approaching 50-50. We also have philanthropy. So we have three revenue streams now. The two by far away the biggest are reader revenue and advertising, which are vying for that top spot there similar value. Uh, And we have philanthropy. So we work with many uh, philanthropic foundations, family foundations, large foundations that again come to us to work on editorial projects together and underwrite our journalism in that way. So a much more diverse, much reader revenue mix than we have had in the past. So talk to me about, you know, first the Guardian's expansion to the U.S. market originally. Mm. Um, I know I remember when it it came here, um, it was with a lot of fanfare. Um, Some bumpy roads, I think, safe to say. Um, You know, I think going into a new market for for anyone is is difficult, for any news provider is difficult. Explain, first of all, you know, the original premise of like, first of all, why? Like, why, why, why does the U.S. market need the Guardian? Of course it needs the Guardian. Oh my I'm gosh, just, I'm just I start with that? trying yeah, to be provocative here. It's everyone. a great question. I love <laughs> it. People uh, often ask me that question. Well, look, so why are we here? So, so you have to look at this from two, uh, in two, from two different perspectives. The role and purpose of the Guardian is to reach as many consumers across the world with free, fact-based, high-quality, trusted, credible journalism. We believe that in allowing as many people as possible to meaningfully engage with our content, that we are better able to have impact in the world. And we are, you, know, you will often hear us say we use clarity and imagination to build hope. That is the purpose of the gardens. That's what we are seeking, our mission in the world. And so why come to America? Well, for the Guardian to continue on its great trajectory of having impact in the world, making a change in the world, then that means that we have to go far and wide. We have to be global. Um, for Americans, why is the Guardian? That's the other perspective. You know, why for Americans, why is the Guardian relevant? Mm-hmm. It gives them perspective. And I, I know what our readers tell us. Do we is, want perspective? You, you actually, well, now over a hundred million Americans really <laughs> want perspective. So what our, our readers, our consumers, will frequently tell us is 
you are the outsider on the insider. So you don't perhaps come with the same baggage, the same agenda, perceived or otherwise, that other news sources might. And so for many progressive Americans, what we bring is mm-hmm. a very different perspective of both what's going on in America, but also what's going on yeah. around the world. Well, I mean, so you're, that's what let, let's talk about that because, I mean, you're, you're European, I think, still. We're, we're still going to call uh, Just Brits out. European. Yes. Um, but uh, when you talk about progressive in, even in a British context, it's very different here. I mean, like, I, I'm sure you've seen the things that actually put our politics like on like a European landscape and like, you know, what we consider progressive are really center right. You know, mm-hmm. for us, like progressives are like probably to the right side of the Blairite world. Um, why, how big is the, is the market here for the kind of more European style progressive progressivism um, that the Guardian, at least to my mind, has has always sort of embodied. Uh, I would say uh, uh, we're certainly from what we're experiencing. I would say it's a growing appetite and interest in. It's interesting when we talk about this word progressive, isn't it? And, and oftentimes people will perceive progressive to be political uh, and. Maybe that's the way it can be interpreted. But when we talk about progressive values, we we think more or talk more, refer more to how we view equality in the world and fairness in the world. And so I often say to people when they go, you know, progressive means, you know, you lean right or left of centre. And it actually, is, does it or does it simply mean we believe in social justice and uh, common good and fairness and equality, whether that's economic equality or gender equality? And I would say, given that we reach a younger consumer in America, that actually the the appeal of the Guardian and our you know what we call progressive uh, values is that people are gravitating to a fairer world and seeking solutions. And that's what The Guardian provides them. It provides them with a platform that talks about those progressive values, that isn't afraid to confront some issues, which quite frankly, we we feel quite... I mean, John Mulholland is our US editor-in-chief, and he articulates outrage at some of the issues that he sees facing Americans and American, mm-hmm. in American society, whether that's homelessness or voting rights or the many, many, many communities who are often the communities that are that suffer the most at the hands of things that are going on in America. And that's what we bring attention to. And that's what people like. So, I mean, I think there can also be a stylistic difference and then we'll get into the business model stuff because mm-hmm. um, there is that both-sideism of even like our progressive, like I would consider the New York Times our version of a progressive publication, yeah. but obviously they, they fall into the both-sideism of, mm-hmm. you know, if there is outrage, it's, confi- it's, it's confined and it's buried into, on the other hand... Yeah, um, the is Guardian, that an opportunity? And that, no. like, we don't have the same <laughs> media tradition as 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 Britain has. Clearly, uh, I definitely there was definitely outrage at the Guardian, uh, and um, <laughs> and we we definitely have an opinion, and uh, or, or I should say, our editors have an opinion. Yeah, um, I think that is. I mean, clearly, the Guardian is almost two hundred years old, so there is a two hundred year old history uh, and uh, habits of that independent voice. Of course, our ownership structure does truly afford us 
the the opportunity to have that independent perspective. Mm-hmm. And so we are unafraid. I mean, a lot of people will use the word we're fearless and bold. I mean, I, if you've ever met any of our editorial team or editorial colleagues, they are both fearless and bold, and they are unafraid to hold power to account and confront difficult subjects and issues. And they're quite opinionated. Mm-hmm. I mean, and there are times, of course, when we make commercial decisions on the strength of The Guardian's purpose and values, which might be uncomfortable from a commercial, purely financial perspective, but actually they're the right things to do. It's, it's The Guardian puts its money where its mouth is. I think that's really important. And I think that's what is recognised and valued amongst many Americans. Right. I will tell you, when I first got here, we had like 50 million uh, readers. And I remember doing a big presentation saying, I, I think, you know, when you look at the progress, the size of the progressive audience in America, maybe it could be 75 million. And we just exceeded 100 million. So clearly, I didn't know what I was talking about. Why, how did you come to 75 million progressive Americans? We've done a huge amount of analysis about, you know, sentiment analysis okay. and, and how people describe themselves. And we kind of just created this category called yeah. progressives. And it... And it enabled us to size the opportunity of what I thought was 75 million. And I thought, you know, that's a big enough opportunity for a brand like The Guardian to fill. So um, in the in the journey to 100 million, mm-hmm. you know, give give me something that didn't work as expected. And then we can move into the stuff that, that has worked as expected. Uh, well, you, actually, it's interesting. You asked a question about our, our kind of history in, in uh, the U.S. And mm-hmm. I think we've been here for around 12-ish years and if you look at our history, it has been a little bit up and down. So there, it would appear that on occasions the strategy hasn't worked because uh, there was a period three or four years ago where actually we downsized our presence. Yeah, in you retrenched the US. a little we bit. We retrenched, absolutely. So I think the big difference is when we first entered America, um, perhaps we were not as focused on, you know, we, we frequently talk now about the importance of meaningful reach. We are have zero interest in reaching as many eyeballs as we possibly can because it's a scale play. Yeah. When we came into America, perhaps we were guilty of pursuing scale because we thought the prize was advertising. Um, and actually, that didn't work out quite so well because the ad market is such a dynamic market. And by the way, there are a number of brilliant, high-quality, amazing American news platforms. And so we were kind of coming into a market as the foreigner, much smaller, um, trying to build an ad business and that strategy didn't work and uh, so yes we absolutely retrenched so I think you know that's a great example of what we didn't do quite so well over the last three years we've consistently grown our footprint our engagement we call them regulars or super users clear reader revenue is only born is only allowable when you have these deep and highly engaged relationships yeah. with your readers. So that's been the pivot of the last three years. So, I mean, it's funny because we, we, we always talk about like, it's like, no, we're not after scale, but then we go to the scale number, right? hundred million is yeah. the scale number. It's kind of easy. But that's the top. It? You need, yeah, everyone's got a funnel. I get that's it. Right. So I want to talk right. about your funnel. So the hundred yes. million is the top of the funnel, but mm-hmm. let's move down the funnel and give me sort of the numbers as you move down the funnel. Um, you talked about, um, I don't know if it goes from the sort of 100 million. They can get there from search. They can get there from anything. Um, I, like, where do you move down the funnel? Yeah, so so why do I, I mean, there are so many numbers I could quote. It depends how you look at it and where they are in the funnel. It will not surprise you that we have quite a sophisticated user journey funnel. So we understand, you know, as somebody comes in, as, as one of those 100 million plus people that come in at the top, where they're likely to fall out, whether they're likely to come back. I think a good counter 
to that 100 million is over the last 12 months, 300, almost 300,000 Americans have, have contributed to The Guardian, have engaged us in a financial uh, relationship. Whether so that's it's anywhere a, from a dollar up to... It, it could be it could be one-time contribution of a dollar. Typically isn't. It typically is a contribution of, I don't know, $25, $30. It could be a repeat contribution. Increasingly what we find here... Americans are very generous. I love them. Um, oh, thank you. Yeah, no, I do. And I've lived here a long time, so I kind of think of myself as one now. But um, increasingly, they give repeat contributions. So, you know, we'll give us a first-time contribution. At, somebody recently gave us $5,000 because they really liked what we were talking about. And then they'll repeat second or third time. Or increasingly, and actually half the number of uh, readers of those almost 300,000 that contributed to The Guardian, they signed up for a recurring relationship with us. So they give us money every month. And that could be $10 a month. Uh, recently, somebody signed up for $500 a month. So, you know, the, the breadth of um, consumer and their propensity to give is really, really broad. Um, or they can subscribe. I mean, we do have subscription products. We have a premium app. Uh, if you do not want to have it, uh, advertising, then you can subscribe uh, for $20 a month. Mm-hmm. So we have different products. But over increasingly what we find is that our readers will say they see their support, whether it's a one-time contribution, a recurring contribution, or a subscription. It is all a means of supporting The Guardian and our journalism. So do they need to, like, I mean, there's a little bit of a science, if you will, to to paywalls in that, you know, you got to get people to hit a paywall. Um, it's like a little bit of blunt force, really. You got to, like, get people to ram their head against this wall, like, several times before yes. they just sort of, like, give up, right? I mean, yes. it's, it's the same kind of, like, with Spotify model. It's like, you know, they, okay, they turn the crank on that, those, those ads, even if they don't have ad inventory, because they know that if you'll get... <laughs> Annoyed just enough, you'll just give yes. in and pay. Yeah, that's true. Um, how different is that? And when do people decide to pay? Is it that like there is it are there some people that just like it's just one article that are they're just like, I'm in? Or like it, it, what's the journey to, um, to contribution? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, without any doubt, and I should just uh, clarify one point. You know, the Guardian's a global organization. I, I'm talking about, you know, the hundred million. American sure. Americans that we talk to, but of course, across the globe, we talk to over 360 million. And so, and one size doesn't fit all. It, we are, we have this amazing, amazing brand called The Guardian, and we have operated 24-7 newsroom, but we are very respectful of the fact that when we are in a US market versus an Australian market versus a European market, that actually The Guardian might mean something slightly different to each of those consumers. And of course, they might behave in very different ways. So Americans, for example, do behave very differently or somewhat differently, I should say. There are many similarities. There are many differences between Americans and Brits. So let's get into those. Yeah, I know. It's really, it's interesting. I mean, but. Good part of my team is British. So like, I love this stuff. And so, and so, uh, I I mean, I'm going to say 80 to 20. I don't think it's 80 to 20 at all. But, you know, we are 80% the same. But there are some key differences. Americans gravitate much more to one-time contributions. Interesting. And it's a relationship. We're establishing a a relationship with our American readers because they give once. What we have found is increasingly they'll repeat their Mm. contributions. So it gives a second time or a third time. But let me just jump in there. Do you think that is like an American versus British thing, which as you know, I love. 
But or is that more just for most Americans? They didn't they didn't grow up with the Guardian. They, I mean, they 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 discovered it in some maybe they did Junior Abroad or something. But I mean, they discovered it later on in life. Whereas I would guess if, 100%. if you grew up, yeah, for sure, for sure, it is in some uh, somewhat connected to that we don't have the same brand presence, brand profile. Um, that said. We we do there are surprise surprise but there are people in the UK who, who perhaps don't know the brand quite so well and and yet also will give on a one on one time basis so I think it's yes it's somewhat connected to that but actually there is a much stronger culture of giving in America that lends itself to one time contributions which is why for example in the in America we run a year end campaign which of course is unique to America we don't run it anywhere else and uh, this year we raised or last year I should say we raised one and a half million through that and that was predominantly through one time contributions so the culture of giving in America is slightly different what we also find is that Americans well our government respond- does less right so we have to make <laughs> up the difference yeah that's absolutely that's absolutely right um we also find that actually what Americans respond to is more emotive. And this, I think, talks to your point about the brand perhaps doesn't have the same awareness. I mean, because we've, you know, we've been here for 11 years. We haven't been here for 200 years. Yeah. Um, and so, for example, we might use language which is much more specific to, uh, you know, right now we will talk about, you know, we, we have a, you know, an ad slot, if you like. We call it the epic. And that's our main way of asking readers to contribute to the journalism. And in America right now, it will talk about the epic decisions and choices that we have to make as a country as we are in an election year. In the UK, they're much more likely to be talking about the trust in the Guardian brand, a British institution that you that you know well and love. And so that's how the language... So there is absolute yeah. science to how we ask, what we ask, and indeed who does the asking. So if John asks a reader to underwrite our journalism... Uh, that will that will oftentimes evoke a much stronger response than uh, if it if it just comes from the Guardian generically, for example. Oh, okay, yeah, um, that's interesting. So uh, I'm sure you have seen. Um, I know you've seen uh, an uptick in users. Um, yes, since the beginning of this unfortunate uh, virus pandemic. Um, give us the numbers as far as how much uh, you're seeing an increase. So March was the biggest month ever, 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 ever. And we hit 114 million browsers in March. And that was an increase 80, 90% on the prior month and about 160% on the prior year. Um, so big. And how much of that is to what you would classify as coronavirus content? I mean, just about all content is coronavirus these days. Well, we were... Um, it, it, so it's certainly a lot uh, around coronavirus content. There is absolutely no doubt that that is what's driving the current trend. We were growing before and, uh, you know, we're in an election year. And of course, when you operate as a 24-7 global news operation, I promise you there's big news happening somewhere in the world pretty much all of the time. And we yeah. our newsrooms are handing off to each other literally around the clock. Um so, you know, in Australia, for example, so we had the bushfires earlier this year. Of course, we've had the whole Brexit um, events unfolding that's, in the that's UK. That's a nice way of putting it. I know. I was paused then thinking, <laughs> how do you describe Got from that? from bushfires events? to Brexit to yeah, coronavirus. Absolutely. It's still a fire, isn't it? Uh, to coronavirus. But, but without any doubt, coronavirus is driving a huge spike in our leadership across the globe. What I would say, which is really interesting, 
interesting and I was inspired uh, to look at our own stats because I read the Neiman Labs piece recently that described this as a corona bump. The suggestion being, well, it's gone back, it's gone up, but it'll come back down. That's mm-hmm. not what we are seeing. Ex- explain that a little bit. Um, y- you're not seeing it tail off, um, you know, because well, I think that the, the comparison is to the Trump bump. And, um, you know, no matter what it is, whether it's yeah. Trump or Corona, the, you know, generally it normalizes. That's right. Well, it's interesting. I think the question then becomes about what what does normal mean? So what we at The Guardian experience It's a good plug is, for the new normal, our uh, <laughs> program <laughs> on go. Friday at I, I teed you up for that. <laughs> um, so what we have experienced, and we experienced this in 2016 uh, in the last election, and we have experienced it with other major news moments, and we are experiencing it right now, is that we definitely see our traffic spike quite considerably and we retain a significant proportion of that traffic and that I think is the thing that really distinguishes the Guardian in terms of our strategic focus on developing meaningful reach and when we talk about meaningful we mean highly engaged we're not interested in eyeballs for the sake of eyeballs we want those consumers and those readers to keep on coming back so we measure not just the spikes but also the retention and then, of course, we measure the growth in regular readers and how frequently they come back and how frequently they engage with us. And so you are right. There is a spike. It falls back a little bit. But in the Guardian's experience, it's only a little bit. It certainly doesn't return to the pre-peak norm. And that's why I kind of I think yeah. the word normalizes. It rebases our reach. So... Are you seeing the same spike, though, in contributions, right? Because we've, um, and, and the data, at least from Piano, is, is actually it's more stark in Europe. It, it seems that um, uh, news providers are seeing a bigger bump in subscriptions in, in Europe than they are in the U.S., and, mm-hmm. and uh, unfortunately they've gone through this longer there, so I would, I would yeah. guess that it would... You know, um, just like everything else, it's it's going to come here a little bit later. Um, but w- we're seeing the the bump um, in everyone I talk to, at least, and in the data that I can I can find in subscriptions. Uh, I wonder whether is it is, are, are the same dynamics at play when it comes to to your model? Yes, yes. So we are. It's not one for one. So we are mm-hmm. seeing a considerable increase in traffic, um, as you would expect. And we are seeing a very significant increase in our reader contributions. Could you the, could you put a number on hmm. the very significant? No, but but it's <laughs> people email me because I I gotta do this because they email me. They're like, gee, I wonder why you didn't like. I'm like, so you know, I'm just trying to press you. Yeah, yeah that's it's 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 a good one to press on, but I'm I'm not going to share the numbers with you. Uh, somebody will shout at me if I do that. So no. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we're just gonna have to settle for very significant, um, it but it is a meaningful. And it is you, meaningful, and you believe not just on your on your gut, but on the data that this is going to persist. Yes, I do. I okay. do. Yeah. Okay. Now, how about on the ad side? Um, the general <gasps> rule of thumb on the ad side, and everyone I've talked to, the numbers vary a little bit. But particularly when it comes to programmatic advertising, people are seeing a 30% decline. Now, um, a lot of that is open marketplace. Um, there are, 
and this is from news publishers, there are, mm -hmm. it seems to me to be two things that are working against, um, even with all this extra traffic. There is the keyword blocking that is going on, and even when people talk about keyword blocking, they think it's just coronavirus, but it is quote unquote bad news, which I'm sorry, everything's bad news to some degree now. And two, there's just simply not a lot of demand. I mean, yes, I get a lot of mask ads and masterclass. I see you. I know you're out there. <laughs> I know that masterclass is available. Um, but they're, they're, and food delivery services, but there's no travel advertising. Um, there's yeah. no retail advertising and, and on and on and on and on. What are you seeing on the ad front? Yeah. So that's, uh, and we were chatting about this before we started, so we should just recap. So um, uh, we are definitely seeing a sharp drop in, in total advertising. If you look at the total ad revenue this quarter, it is not clearly where we imagined it was going to be. Um, there is still Can you put a number on that, Eva? Oh, yeah. No, I, I, can't. I mean, I think uh, we are estimating that we will see 30% plus. Hits okay. to our total advertising revenue okay. this quarter. That sounds about in line. I mean, the yeah. LA Times said fifty percent. That's that's high. I mean, I think that's somewhat unique to a local uh, newspaper. Yeah, and and what and actually, the, the, what's been interesting is we have been able to offset, despite all of the negative, uh, the keyword blocking in the LMP marketplace, the the sheer volume of traffic and therefore mm -hmm. inventory growth has meant that we have delivered higher OMP. And so we've been able to offset some of that more direct display hit on the business. So when I say it, it's about in the range of 30-ish percent, that's our total advertising business. Direct business might be down more than 30%. OMP is offsetting it a little bit because mm -hmm. of the increased volume. And it, the key, keyword blocking is, well, look, that's a major strategic issue for the news industry and it's the thinking behind it is flawed, but but that predates coronavirus. That's yeah. about news, actually. So, so just before we, we we wrap up, we only have a couple minutes. But like, what um, what is going on with this keyword blocking? I mean, I hear like you know about this from a lot of people, and and you know brands are out there talking purpose, 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 at least on Twitter and on on conference stages, and then something like this happens, and these same marketers oftentimes are bemoaning the how Google and Facebook are the only options, but then at the same time, they're, they're I don't know, I, I like actions, not words. Maybe that's me. Yeah, I mean, I would, I, I, I should give a shout out. I mean, it's, it's, you know, there are brands, of course, like Bank of America that are really leaning into the news category and leading from the front. And uh, so there are brands out there who both recognize the value in news consumers because they are highly, highly engaged consumers. And they don't, perceived news as being bad. Um, there is a lot of talk that more brands will move in that direction. Um, relatively few are actually moving in that direction as yet, but we, we by we, I mean the news industry, mm -hmm. works individually and together to try and reposition how the news category is perceived. But it is still a very significant uh, proportion of the US and global ad market seeks to avoid news content. And that undermines our businesses uh, and I think the brand's businesses, given how deeply engaged news consumers are with news content. I think it's both good for the news category. I think it's good for society, candidly, to support and not to keyword block. Drives okay. me bonkers. Um, 
Okay, so w- w- with keyword blocking, obviously it's an issue. And um, are you going brand by brand and, um, and saying, hey, you're blocking, you're blocking us? I, I don't, because I've heard this also from publishers, uh, major publishers, that they've just said, you know, screw it. We're just going to go brand by brand and tell them, do you know that you're blocking us? Because there seems to be a little bit of a disconnect between what you're thinking you're doing and what uh, your agency is doing. Yeah, we, uh, yes, the short answer is yes. We do that to the extent which we can, by which I mean we're a relatively small team in the States and we can't necessarily have direct one-to-one relationships with a thousand clients. But absolutely, to those clients where we know there's an absolute fit and yet we're, and we're hearing one thing but seeing a different behaviour, then we, then we go directly to them and have the conversation directly with them. And that is something we'll have to continue to do. It certainly will not be resolved quickly, unfortunately. This has been an issue, as I said, this has been an issue that predates coronavirus. I think it's just really amplified because yeah. of the moment that we're in. I mean, we talk a lot about acceleration of trends and there's also yeah. like an amplification effect. So a lot of issues, a lot of things are being accelerated and some positive trends, uh, like for instance, like direct reader um, support for quality news. But there's also a lot of um, of problems that get amplified in a time like this. This, right. this isn't new. That's right. I think what has been in, I mean, I am interested, I do not have a crystal ball. I don't know where this will go really. I know where I'd like it to go. I don't know where it will go. Um, I think there are there are more positive discussions and debates have it going on around keyword blocking now than I have seen in the past. And so I would like to believe that actually this could be a catalyst for change in the right direction, particularly because a small but brave number of clients are really leaning into this. And therefore I I think it very well could change. Yeah. So final thing is around, you know, I think that the Guardian has unique structure that should afford it um, to really take a longer view. And I think that the, mm-hmm. the structure is sort of made for that. And this is a time, um, I'm actually going to be getting off this to, to write my own column about moving beyond triage and moving into forward thinking. Because it can get, it can, it can be really easy during a time like this to just get stuck in triage and triage is really important because um, you got to get to the other side, but like you got to also get to the other side um, in a position um, to be stronger and to, um, to move up. Um, That's right. So how do you end up? Um, I mean, I would, I would guess, but I'm not sure. Like, I mean, are you guys well positioned not to retrench? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, well, look, we are um, very profitable and, and uh, in the States. And uh, in fact, I have a town hall coming up just after this uh, conversation, and I'll probably be saying something quite similar to the team. Um, now, look, we have so, so there's a number of things. We have a very strong position in America. Uh, our traffic, our engagement, our loyal and engaged readers have been growing. Uh, slowly and steadily, not, we didn't come in, spend a bazillion dollars on, you know, magic hundred million consumers. We have been doing this through and with the strength of the journalism and the demand and need for a different perspective within the news ecosystem. There is absolutely no doubt that we're going to see a, 
uh, uh, boost to our reader revenue during this period. And we are going to see our advertising hit hard. I do not know how long and how deep. I don't think any of us do. Even in the most dire scenario that I have looked at, The Guardian will still be a profitable business in America. And so are we well positioned to continue on our journey to grow? Yes. And mm-hmm. I feel very confident about that. Will How do you allay be... concerns that like, you know, I would guess, I mean, you're the, the you're the CEO of US and, and Australia, right? Mm-hmm. So like, you know, the the core is in the UK. I would guess that you have to deal with people saying, uh-oh, we look at we look at where cuts are going to come and the cuts are going to come to the, you know, the provinces, if you will. Like in, <laughs> in this case, the provinces are, are the US and Australia. Um, no, I think uh, it's, a, it's uh, it definitely is a worry that the, that my colleagues have. And I know that because they ask me, are we going to lose our job? And uh, in any market, with any business, uh, in any situation, coronavirus or not, n- nobody can guarantee anything. The world's ever, you know, constantly changing. I can't stand up in front of my team and say, I can guarantee your job's safe. Do not worry. That would be foolish. We are definitely having to cut our cloth. You know, we are reducing budgets. We made a round of uh, announcements this morning globally about measures that we have taken to reduce our cost base in order to mitigate revenue risk during this period. But this is where our ownership structure does definitely help us. We can afford to take the longer term strategic right. view of the opportunity for the Guardian in the world. And that doesn't mean that we have a trust that, that offers us a blank check, because that would be stupid. But uh, it gives us a level of comfort that we can make thoughtful, mindful decisions about the long-term health of this business, wherever this business and brand is in the world, rather yeah. than, shit, I've got a bad word, bad word. It's okay. We put uh, the explicit warning you. on this. Um, That's fine. We don't have to make knee-jerk decisions now to literally take all of that cost out of our business. We don't yeah, I mean, everyone has to cut costs, and anyone who says they're not of cutting course. costs is Stupid. either maybe Bloomberg or Lyon. Um, because like, it's impossible <laughs> not to cut costs. I think the big question is, who's going to be able to do this in a way that really protects the core of what they are and their uniqueness and positions themselves to come out of this? Because this will, this will end at some point. Um, stronger. And, you know, this is the time I was just doing an interview. Someone said, this is the time you move up and down the league tables. Yeah. And, um, okay, Evelyn, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you all for joining us. Um, We'll be back next week with a new episode. And reminder, check out The New Normal. It is this Friday at noon. Uh, We'll be talking um, to Skift co-founders Rafat Ali and Jason Clampett about how they are adopting a very similar Guardian-like contribution model. So check it out.